we created 16 foot loft units where you sleep above your kitchens. It's got nail laminated timber floors. It's, it has the brick. It, it has all those little features that, that are not a new construction building down the street. So there's this character and people are willing to pay for character. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm your host, Nicolina Savelli. And in this show, I take a tactical approach to helping those in multifamily improve their marketing and advertising efforts. And today I have two very interesting guests with me, Joe Nickerson, who is the vice president and partner at Bruno Group, and Elliot McNeil, who is the president of Bruno Group. Welcome to the show, Joe and Elliot. Hi, Nick. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having us. <laughs> no Thanks problem. for finding us out here on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No worries. Glad to have you. And obviously, I'd like for both of you to introduce yourselves. We typically don't do two people at the same time on this podcast, so we'll take a different approach to kind of introducing everyone. But um, if you could provide a, a bit of background on your careers and basically what eventually led you to where you are today. Elliot, I believe you are the founder and creator of Bruno Group. So do you mind going first? Sure, sure. Thank you. So yeah, my name is Elliot McNeil. I'm, as you mentioned, the founder of a group of uh, really incredible companies here. We're in the we're in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is the east coast of Canada. We're about um, a 12-hour drive from Boston, I guess you'd say. Keep going east. Mm-hmm. So my background, um, I grew up probably three and a half hours from the city we live in now. I, I grew up in the country, a firm country, where you really had to fend for yourself, build everything from scratch or fix or repair And I think growing up that way, I became obsessed with building things, to be honest. Coincidentally, though, pursued a um, a marketing and communications design in college, which was a complete departure of other construction-related paths that one may take from the country. You know, I had a a great career in the marketing and uh, design world. I actually created an agency here in our city and, and exited that about 10 years ago. But um, as soon as I got into that world, I started building homes and taking on really aggressive renovation projects and additions and creating you know smaller duplexes and triplexes and buying them and selling them. And eventually, after doing that alongside of the, the ad agency world, the creativity bug was in me and I really... I just decided that I was ready for the next chapter of my life and I pursued the construction and real estate thing full time. Being on the the owner or client side, working with construction companies, I saw a huge opportunity to do things differently, present yourself in a different way, be really just deliver on the small things that you should in business. So I first started a construction company here uh, called Bruno Builders at the same time as you know slowly getting into development. It's really tough to to get going. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have have read the read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, but you know, I I actually did at one time, and it really inspired me to just go for it with a complete focus on development. So I built a lot of great relationships through my through my business career in the, on in the marketing world, and was able to attract some high net worth individuals to to help get going. And 
you know, it was a big ask way back then when I look, but I started small yeah. and kind of crawl, mm-hmm. walk, and now we're running. One thing that kind of made a difference, I guess, was just having a handle on what was happening in construction and understanding construction myself, the ability to kind of hunt and gather opportunities for deals. And and one of those things was simply understanding zoning and bylaws and and finding little loopholes or workarounds or areas that were overlooked by others on a small scale and be able to carve out an additional unit or two here and there. And that's where I started to create value when I was young. So here we are today, you know, we have a, we have a group of companies focused on, you know, construction management services, uh, a design build general contractor that works with residential and, and commercial clientele. We have a property management company. We have a real estate development company. We have some design expertise here. So, you know, we're, we're just north of 40 people, I guess, in, a, in our group. And, um, you know, and it's growing rapidly here in this market. So that's a long-winded background on myself. But That's uh, okay. I'll I think that was... Joe here maybe. Yeah, that was great. So, yeah, Joe, feel free to jump in on uh, how you guys kind of came together and, and, and kind of your your career and, and how it led you to, to Bruno Group. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a slightly different, different path than that. We've got um, pretty, pretty diverse backgrounds, but I think Elliot had grown up in, in Cape Breton and moved to Halifax. I grew up uh, in Halifax, went to Dalhousie and actually met Elliot through my, my sister in high school. So we, we go back along a longer path, but we had known each other um, in a different context for about 15 years. Like I said, I, I went to Dalhousie. I studied finance there. I always had an interest in, in real estate and design. But when I was kind of coming into that world in in like the mid mid 2000s, you know, it was pre pre real estate crash and pre kind of bubble blowing up in mm-hmm. 2008. So it was still a time of like you know sales and trading was was sec- like kind of a, a, a sexy business to be in at the time when I was when I was studying finance. So I initially took the 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 path out of school of going capital markets. Um, I worked I ended up working post Dalhousie finance grad uh, for RBC Capital Markets, and then went to a more independent sales and trading shop. But but did that for a couple of years with the intention of always getting back into to real estate after that. Just kind of like the idea was make a little make a couple quick bucks and get back into something that I was more passionate about. Right. Yeah. And I would say that the crash sped up that timeline a little bit. The want to make the move sooner rather than later. So after RBC and the independent sales and trading job, I started working with in real estate targeted uh, family owned uh, real estate developer in Toronto. He had a portfolio of kind of like 100 million to 200 million. So um, like not, not tiny, but not huge by any mm-hmm. means or by standards. So he was a bit of uh, kind of a, a one man shop um, with third party relationships. And I worked with him exclusively to, to kind of show me the ropes and show me what it takes to be more entrepreneurial on the development side. And then from that role, I ended up working, I did an MBA in real estate at Schulich and started working with kind of a a next level of um, family run or private uh, development companies by the name of Pomeroy Lodging. So they were were a hotel and and resort developer, worked with them for about three years. We repositioned some pretty large scale assets out in kind of the Rocky Mountains and, and BC and Alberta. Yeah, and then transitioned from there to more of a pension fundy feel 
at, at Slate Asset Management, um, did that for, for a little while, got a really good understanding of what it takes to transition office buildings and things along that line and work in a large, you know, portfolio structure. I was more in the private side um, than, than the, the, the REIT market, but um, big company, good experience. And then I ultimately worked for for Starlight as well in the U.S., doing multifamily, gained some experience there for a couple of years. And uh, Elliot, we had reconnected prior to that. Um, I was really looking to do something entrepreneurial and loved what Elliot was doing with the, the area redevelopment strategies and, and the target uh, market that he was in in Halifax. Um, so saw a lot of opportunities there and synergies. And that kind of relationship that we had and opportunities kind of fostered into this. And then we branched out um, and, and formalized the development arm um, of, of the company and started going after bigger and bigger assets. And this is kind of where we're at today. So when when was that? Like how many years ago did you guys kind of reconnect and, and start doing that? We kind of probably uh, two and a half years ago. Let's just say, I guess, we kind of landed on a deal four or five months before COVID hit. Yeah. That's what I was going right? to say. Was it near? Was yeah. it nearing COVID? Yeah. 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 And then... And then Joe decided to move out during COVID, which was a an interesting adventure as well. But uh, he moved his whole family back back home, and right uh, that was April of the beginning of COVID, I guess. So yeah, yeah, it would have been in Toronto for about ten years, um, and then we made the decision to move back pre COVID or anything happening. And then we went through the same question marks that everyone else did with with COVID. But yeah, it was definitely uh, a great move, and we've been able to do some pretty exciting things. Yeah, so. I- I guess I mean before I get into the, the the second question here is did that did that change anything or did it just kind of set you on more of a a different trajectory with with COVID happening and and I guess with the the question is really you know something happened with commercial real estate took a huge hit and there was a mass exodus so and developers like yourselves are now capitalizing I guess on on buildings and transforming them into residential housing. So was that because of, I mean, obviously COVID has given you some opportunities, but it sounds like you were already kind of working in that direction. Yeah. uh, I'll jump in. Um, Prior to Joe coming on board, I had already set out on a, as Joe mentioned, an area redevelopment play. So really kind of trying to transform an area here called Dartmouth, which is Mm-hmm. which is the, the Brooklyn of, of New York. It's literally across, it's a ferry ride across, you know, just saw a, a huge opportunity here and, and started working over here six years ago and acquiring as much as I we could to really transform this area. And a, a big a big part of our strategy was mixed use, mid-sized mixed use. Okay. So we were, we, were, we were acquiring many retail type, locations, uh, ground floor retail with some other mix, and then really just increasing the density in those areas. So now our, our focus or our, our track record has for the most part been focused on adaptive reuse projects or, or, or conversion type projects where we are converting commercial properties to a mix of residential and or commercial and, and then and then growing that now we've since cr- started to grow out of this area and taken mm-hmm. on and, and acquired some larger buildings where we'll continue to convert but we also own a fair amount of land here where we have a 
pipeline of approximately 600 units to build now ahead of us, probably over the next 10 years. So it is in combination, but our focus definitely has been the commercial area districts and, and kind of converting what we can bringing essentially investing in the commercial, mm-hmm. which a- attracts the residential through curating new entrepreneurial tenants in these retail spaces. And it really creates a groundswell of, of really interesting people wanting to come together and rebuild an area. So we've been quite successful with that. And it's difficult to find those areas in the world, but we lucked out here with a perfect location. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, just, just to add to that from like a COVID standpoint before the, like the impact to commercial that you were mentioning in Mm -hmm. in the question there, like that, that was initially kind of one thing that really attracted me. What Elliot had done is he was working with, you know, he had brought in, well-known entrepreneurs and cool restaurants and was creating this this unique mix of, of commercial retail um, and largely kind of what had been a tougher area to make those type of businesses work and had, had kind of fallen out of favor to some degree prior to him coming in. So that was one of the unique things that I really respected and, and liked about the opportunity and, and saw what was building there with the, the, the mix of, of retail tenants that was there. So COVID was an initial kind of big question mark on how, how that was going to be impacted. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think what we were able to do, I think one, for one, Halifax fared better than, than a lot of other areas through COVID so that there's like some, something to be said for that. But the other thing is, you know, we have entrepreneurs as a target mix of our, our commercial and those people were less likely to fold up shop and like a, a lot, it was for some people it was primary businesses and different things. So there was a lot more working with people and, and figuring things out with, you know, not 10 other locations to worry about and, and, right, of and, course. and things like that. So, but it, it was a scary, I mean, we went through all the feelings just like yeah. anyone else. Like we, we stepped back and we're, you know, holy yeah, what is what is yeah. what is going to happen here? And then at the same time, you know, we're sprinkling seeds around and trying to find opportunity. And there was everyone stepped back. It, it felt like in in a lot of ways from everything. And everybody everything. paused, didn't know how to make a decision. You know, mm-hmm. we were approaching other owners, trying to acquire other property, and and no one could make a decision. And then you know, I would say this last this spring, so a year later, mm-hmm. all of the opportunity opportunities that the, the came together at one time and then it was just, you know, but that was a pent up demand. I think that most industries. Absolutely. It's been a lot of, yeah, a lot of pressure. We even see from, from the rental side too, everyone stopped looking kind of for, for, for a while. And then all of a sudden in the last three months, it's just been go, go, go with, with just movement and demand and demand changes and, and, in places and obviously Halifax has been impacted by by that significantly which I will also talk about but before we get to that I kind of wanted just to talk about some of the advantages of basically converting commercial spaces into mixed use or res- residential is there any advantages to doing that uh, obviously when you already have kind of some things in place that might help, but then I'm sure there's some disadvantages there too. So do you mind just sharing some of those experiences? There's probably more disadvantages than advantages. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. I did. You know, yeah. You know, this is a movement that's that's been happening over the last uh, number of years in different markets. And um, it sounds really simple when you, when you think about it. Empty commercial converted to residential. 
Bob's your uncle. It's, you know, but <laughs> when, you start, when you start to get into um, zoning and permitting and code and life safety and existing leases, just the mix of the uh, commercial and residential components. And then you get into the, the, you know, as everybody, most people have experienced the unforeseens with, with a home, with a, even a, a home residential project. So, you know, multiply that by how many on, on taking away the layers of a, of a large building that you're not in control of from new construction standpoint. So lots of challenges and hair on that kind of a, a approach and, and opportunity. But at the same time, there, there are a lot of advantages. We've just acquired a large 13-story office building across the harbor here, right in the downtown. It's center ice. We have no parking. So we are, we are center ice. It is downtown, um, steps from the waterfront. But, you know, that's a big challenge. Would, would we have no parking if we were to build new construction? Probably not. But at the same time, that is a small challenge in the grand scheme of the opportunity over the next 10 years. And, you know, we couldn't be in a better place to not have, yeah. <laughs> not have parking. But to answer your question, definitely from a risk standpoint, to be able to control the general contracting or construction management side of the development and not be at the mercy of a larger GC that has the capability of taking on a large, you know, multi-million dollar project like this, that is a huge advantage for us. And it, it's, a, mm. it's a competitive advantage. And mm -hmm. uh, also to have the relationships we do in the design world and familiarity with building code and, and life safety and all those technical challenges that come with the building, just like we thoughtfully model and underwrite projects we thoughtfully review the feasibility in, in a lot of different areas to ensure that we can truly unlock the value and have a clear path to a, a successful project uh, and close them. So yes, lots of disadvantages. And to be honest, most developers here are new construction developers. And so competitively, you know, we're, we're, we're uniquely positioned there for, for this type of approach to work in this market. And it would slow most down. I right. Think. I was going to say, it's just not for everyone I, by the yeah. sounds of it. So, yeah. But the, yeah. the other advantage, advantages, I mean, obviously, we don't, ha we, we don't have to excavate in the downtown center and, and blast and do all the site works and civil work required to get a parking podium in, which could be a couple of years. It could be a year or two, depending on what's required. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get out of the ground, you're... There's 30 tower cranes in this small little city of we're 450,000 ish in our, in our city. And there's probably 300 of those are in the core urban center. And there's 30 tower cranes trying to do projects here. And there's not enough cranes. There's not enough form workers. We could have another whole show about labor shortages. And, that, and that's not just the East Coast. That, that's something being experienced from, from, from here to Germany. So, yes, lots of disadvantages, a lot of advantages. I'm not sure you wanted to add anything there, Joe, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely it's not for everyone. I think that's good good point. There's there's advantages there, like like Elliot said, like you're you're purchasing an existing building, so there's there's time you know benefits, there's revenue attached to that for the existing. There's lease hair and different things involved in that, but it we approach it. We we see like we obviously see the advantages and the opportunity on our side. So there's there's uniqueness of product. It's not being built to the same spec as all the other stuff. Like Halifax, one of the big things here is height restrictions for view planes. Oh, okay. So the, the building that Elliot's talking about with the limited parking, it has that limited parking aspect, but it has 11 and a half foot ceilings on every floor growing up to 14 foot and it's concrete construction. So 
like that's an example of something that no one's building in the market because you we were effectively giving up floors of, of residential to do that, but we're purchasing. So we'll have unique uniqueness of product and, and yeah, maintaining the original character is, is part of our, our strategy with every, every conversion or adaptive reuse play, mm-hmm. taking institutional style buildings, commercial buildings, really respecting the character that exists there today and really just growing on that, growing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, that kind of answers some of the, the next question, but maybe you can expand slightly on it and, and basically what you guys look for before investing into into a development. Are there any things that you're like, no, I won't touch it if that's what I'm dealing with? Or are you guys, you know, like, you know what? We can figure it out. <laughs> it's a big, yeah. that's, a, that's a doozy. I think, I think the starting point for us though is, is location. Like it's the old, okay. okay. Or but like we do, we do target areas more like where, where we consider ourselves area redevelopers, like what we were saying in, in Dartmouth. So location is a good starting point for us. We look at, you know, anything and everything within a location and we're not in a very small box. We have a wide berth of what we were, we look at, but it is location specific. I would say to start that one. Okay. Okay. Anything to add there, the numbers, need, the numbers need to work. Yeah, yeah. The numbers uh, need to well, work, yeah. yeah. You know, what's interesting, even in this market, you know, there's the, there's quite a large development community, to be honest. And if you broke it down, everybody has a little bit of a, a specific thing they do a little different, you know, and, and luckily, therefore, it works. And with ours, I would definitely say that the, the focus has been more conversion type projects that look complicated and technical and difficult and oftentimes they create the most value sometimes if you can if you've if you've if you have the experience if you have the experience yeah, yeah. and i'm sure you're you're saying you know i know no one else is going to do this so this is a great great opportunity for us to to get in there because we're not going to have too much competition moving in into yeah. into that area although the, the activity here right now both from local development and investment investors now combined with COVID really put our city and our our province on the map as far as popularity and just quality of life. It's a, it's a incredible place to live. It has checks all the boxes. It really does. It's attracted a lot of attention from away. I think we generally grow by 5,000 net new people approximately a year. I believe we lose, we used to lose more to Alberta, but I think, um, we gained almost 4,000 people from Ontario just between the months of April to June, I believe, in the past. So we're now benefiting from a whole lot of great people coming back, as well as new people that have never visited here once and just and said, you know decided. what, I can't afford a home in Toronto anymore. And I don't want to grow up with no yard. And my kids grew up with no yard. And yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because my parents, their neighbors sold their house kind of mid-pandemic, moved to Nova Scotia. They both have remote jobs, but also were nearing retirement and sold their $850,000 home for a $400,000 property. And, and they'll retire on that and they're going to be they're going to be happy for for life, but you know it's also created a bit of a pain point for locals and, and uh, real estate and, and I'm sure rental housing as well. I've seen, I'm, I'm kind of skipping over some stuff here, but basically there's been a report that says, you know, Nova Scotia has gone up 12.5% over the last few months in terms of uh, like the cost of real estate, which is the most out of any other province in Canada. And we've 
seen on our, we do a rental demand report here and Halifax and even Dartmouth have risen dramatically. You know, Halifax wasn't even on it before COVID. And then all of a sudden it's like 11th in demand on the list, like almost top 10 kind of in demand. So, and I'm sure that's impacting rent rates and what you're pricing things at. And then there's the backlash from the locals saying, well, we can't even afford to live here anymore. Would you have any opinions on that? And what kind of developers can do to kind of help or create some affordable housing or, you know, price things (laughs) right, or at least fair? (laughs) Interested in being a guest on Sink or Swim or have a really great idea for an episode? Email us at podcast at rentsync.com. So all of those things are correct. We, we experienced a massive influx of new people. It put a ton of pressure on the local housing market. The actual numbers are closer to 33%, I believe, of the uh, increase in value in the Halifax area. Okay. Year yeah, yeah, yeah. Year over year. Okay, sorry. Yeah, mine was just for the last few months. So, yeah. A, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, it started to price out some locals, created a major bidding war. The agents changed their approach to even how they sell a home and adopted the, the model of other provinces and bigger mm. cities. But mm-hmm. but yes, we're we're actually in an official housing crisis here right now. So our vacancy rates are hovering around one percent, and that's only uh, that's only because there's a delay in actually getting the data. There there is no inventory. There is waiting lists at every property management company or, or landlord in the city. That's good. It's 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 bad. It's good for you. It's bad like, for you know, others. Well, yeah, yeah. And this 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 affordability and housing conversation is is a daily thing. I think around the world, even right now, yeah. there's yeah. no easy answer. It's it's a it's a really big problem that needs a large collaborative effort. I think between governments, private. I mean, and it and it and it's not going to be figured out for a little while. I mean. That's a whole nother yeah, conversation. Yeah. I guess I guess I can I can say, is there anything you guys are specifically trying to do? You grew up in 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 Nova Scotia. You know the area. Obviously you don't want to push people out of their homes or out of their the city. You want to attract people. So is there anything that you guys are kind of preparing or doing in when you're kind of thinking about these developments and and how you'll price them and how you're kind of going to do it so it benefits both in some way or you know i mean everyone's talks about big bad landlords and big bad developers is there any way to, to kind of say that you're not that necessarily yeah well, yeah i think it's just it's it's a it's a it's a psyche it's like you know developers big you know build big buildings that looks like it's worth a lot of money therefore they're rich therefore right but you look at the cost increases that we're facing now to build something. We actually we have to look overlook most opportunities because or, or because of that. Because yeah, the, yeah. It's literally, the costs are so high. Whether it's the property taxes that are getting pushed on you, or just truly the cost of the lack of labor. Therefore, the higher the build the, the build costs, yeah. and therefore the more the economies of scale. You need more units to overcome that, and then so the the, the discussion around. Can you get your rental rates lower? Not really. <laughs> do that when you get all the pressure on the other side, and yeah, it's a function of a bunch of different things. Right? Yeah, like it's I don't know what the perfect totally. solution is for affordable housing, but there's definitely a lot of driving factors that that are causing rents to be what they're at. Just 
outside of just trying to push rents, like there's increased costs, there's increased land values. There's, you know, it's a, it's a function of what is happening in the market, but I think there's things that you can do to help afford or affordability. I think supply and demand is the easiest one. The more supply that we can get into the market, then the less, you know, the less 1% and sub 1% vacancy rates we're going to have and the less ability there is to push rents to those degree. So I think supply is a major constraining factor to it. Uh, One of the things that we're doing, I think that will be a big help. Like there's a abundance of office vacancy in the market. There's a lack of residential supply. We're doing some larger scale conversions. We're doing the 175,000 square foot one that Elliot mentioned in Halifax, which is taking a portion, not the full building, but a portion of the the vacant office and converting that to residential. So, so that's one that helps with the immediate supply. You know, rather than taking three or four years to build a, a new 100 or 200 unit building, we're going to be doing that um, in kind of like a year and a half, two years. We're doing the same thing. In Dartmouth, which was a strategy we had started before COVID with an 80 unit building. It was an eight story building in Dartmouth, an old hotel. We're converting that. So I think that will help supply. And we're working with government groups and programs to talk about affordability and grants and different things that are out there that would, you know, we could employ it in some of our buildings. Um, and we're, we're seeking out that grant money and trying to get that that will help us offset the cost of some of these units. So we're doing things, but there's no perfect solution, and I don't know that anyone's yeah. figured it out quite yet. Yeah, we care about affordability, and we we care about housing for all. The mm-hmm. last thing we want to see is is there's people living in tents in my in the park behind my house. Uh, yeah, you know, this summer, same. You know, it really that really um, hits struck hit a chord the most yeah. and struck a chord. But at the end of the day, you know, we need we need something to help create buildings to be more affordable, whether that's funding or subsidies or, or some kind of grant format. Absolutely. We're, Absolutely. we're applying for that. We're applying for that money, but there's so little available. There's mm-hmm. so much red tape that it's you, sometimes the time isn't there or you need to have a project shovel ready or permit ready to then ask for the money that may not be available anymore. So you miss that window. It's just, there's not enough available yet to really actually make big change. So, but we hope there's more tools for us to leverage as we grow to to make a difference and, and really do what we can with the buildings we own. And by the sounds of it, you are you are taking the right approach. You are doing what is necessary in order to to create that supply, which I think, like Joe said, that's the easiest easiest lowest hanging fruit in order to create that affordability or at least more inventory, so that people have a place to go. So there's not bidding wars on rentals, which which is crazy. I've never, you know, that that that's crazy to me. I have friends that are trying to move back to Toronto right now. They're bidding on rental on their rentals. And I lived in Toronto for five years, about five years ago. And that was something I never, ever mm-hmm. thought would happen. So, wow. I mean, I knew that real estate was expensive. I just didn't know. I, I always thought that, you know, rentals were priced the way they were priced. There, there was no bidding war on that. So yeah, I think you guys hit a lot of important points there. And I, I kind of want to steer away from from kind of this melancholy uh, discussion on on that and really just focus on kind of your buildings and and how you create them and your vision and, and the design. I saw a social post and it said, I quote, before we got our hands on it, this building was voted the ugliest in Halifax two years in a row by the coast. And since we never shy away from a challenge, we turned it into a modern, sophisticated North End hotspot. Do you mind telling me a little bit about 
kind of the creative vision behind these projects and, and how you get your inspiration? Yeah, we're, I think Joe and I really connect on the the business side, but also the creative creative side of life. And every that's why we love existing buildings. I think because they are their own; they have a personality, just like a, a human being. And we and they're all different, and they all have opportunity to be groomed into something different. And so we we look at each of these opportunities as a as a canvas, and you know how can we really create something that the neighborhood gets behind and appreciates art is really important to us. So how, how can we influence, influence these existing buildings with, with our special touch that it is creates something that is, that people want to talk about. And so there's that example you just mentioned or, or taking, um, we took the old telephone, telephone hub from the old telecom company that used to run hard lines for operators and whatnot. And it yeah. Was a yeah. Big old, yeah big old brick building and you know we added a 75 foot wood addition on the top that it, you know with a with a great architecture firm here locally and we just won in a best adaptive reuse project in the in the local design awards and that is you know we, we created 16 foot loft units where you sleep above your kitchens it's got nail laminated timber floors it's it has the brick it, it has all those little features that that are not a new construction building down the street so right. there's these, yeah. this character and people are willing to pay for character and, and this work live concept, working from home to have that really unique space is inspiring. So we look for that every time. We also just acquired a, a, a eight story concrete hotel, a brutalist style building, and we're converting that to a micro suite concept. Again, really unique features. There's a, there's a six story atrium in the center. We want to, we're, we're going to create a hotel lobby bar concept. So a very social focused building or experience. And of course, we just mentioned, we, we, we just successfully acquired this larger office building a few weeks ago. Again, a huge opportunity to do something different and, and make a mark on the city again. There, there's just so much opportunities, buildings to, to be creative. And we're, we're blessed to have such great architecture and design firms here locally. Of course, everyone's tapped probably a year out right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've built relationships here and we're lucky to work with everyone we do. And, and, and it, uh, there's still lots ahead for us to do. For sure. Now, is there something that you've looked for that you just haven't found yet that you want to to kind of your dream kind of project? What what would really kind of get you excited and out of bed in the morning? I mean, I'm sure you're already feeling that way about some of them, but is there a vision that you have that you're like, oh, I'd really love to, I'd re- love if that place went up for sale <laughs> and I could get my hands on Good it. Good question. I don't know if there's one right now that's on the board where okay. you know, we're, we're, we're chasing it hard, but we've been blessed with such a variety of cool buildings that we've acquired from from old strip joints to old Chinese <laughs> restaurants nice. to to telephone buildings to you know hotels and office buildings and and, and everything in between. It'd be cool to get our hands on a church. Yeah, I think we could. That do would something be very cool. Really great with a church that's been a big movement over the number of years and we, we haven't landed on something there yet, but that would be interesting. And, yeah. and again, starting with some great character. Yeah. Char- I think character is key and every building has different elements of character for mm-hmm. us. And we try to suss that out, but yeah, I think a church would be really cool. There's some cool church developments at Toronto's had some really cool church, mm-hmm. church redevelopments. Um, so that's yeah, one yeah. anything brick and beam we like. It's, it's less abundant than it, it, it was in Toronto and Montreal, but Freaking is interesting. I think we've just done a bunch of, and this office building will be the next one, but we've done a bunch of like 
brutalist style buildings, uh, stripping back to concrete and kind of highlighting those those raw lofty concrete elements. So probably a, a natural shift would be something with, with brick and, and wood elements into it. Yeah, and, it, and it, that's not anything that hasn't been done before, but there, there's so many other things you can do to add a twist to the overall concept. You know, and again, to this microsuite concept, this conversion of this hotel, you know, we, 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 we discovered an atrium. So there's these old hotels in the U S is my memory of them, but yeah. essentially, you know, you're on the seventh floor and you have, you, you exit your room and you have a balcony and you look down into a, a busy alive atrium or, or, or ground floor lobby of some sort. So we discovered that in this building. So we are bringing that back. That's something we are really excited about right now as far as projects go, mm-hmm. is that we're, we're peeling this back. We've got at this building. It looks like parkades on each floor. And we're adding a story and a half to the top of the building we're, we're with, with a greenhouse concept, commercial concept on the top, which opens itself to a bunch of different uh, options. But this lobby is truly going to be this incredible, think of it as a, a hotel lobby, open six stories in height, lends itself to great art opportunities, you know, wall graphics, types of amenities you can put in this space. So that that's one that's really exciting us right now as well as this office tower obviously yeah. we're coming up with some really great ideas for that so it's fun we're, we're blessed to be doing what we're doing and started when we did and got in when we did it's hard to get going in this business and once you do you know hold on tight it's it there's a lot starts you know, <laughs> fall in place and come at you quick that's good advice that's good advice and i was I'm pretty much my my last question really is do you have any advice for those looking to build or invest in Nova Scotia right now? Are there some untapped markets or opportunities that they should be looking at and, and creating that supply in, in, in the area? Yeah, that's that's pretty much my last my last question here. So one benchmark, I guess, that, that would be interesting for your listeners is, you know, what are what are per square foot rates? You know, what what mm. what is uh, where are units landing right now in value? So it's safe to say new units are pushing i mean on the high end there's there's some there's some high end units pushing 5 bucks a, a foot around here you know it was 2 bucks last year 250 in a lot of places now it's 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 over 3 dollars so you you can be you'll find units for 1500 bucks for a 500 square foot unit so that's expensive but you know what it's a million millions of dollars to put a hole in the ground and you got to and it's pyretic slate and you have to get it ship to be dumped in a qualified dumping location that costs $250 a ton. I mean, it is crazy the costs that add up on you and the delays in permitting mm-hmm. and the and the cost of permitting. Our costs of mm-hmm. one single unit costs $4,000 in permitting fees here. So if you have 100 units, you can you can do the quick math. So it used to be when I got going, it used to be $800. So there's a, another great example of cost getting wow. on our end uh, of new costs and increased costs. Yeah. 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 And I, I think like in terms of advice for someone looking to get in or, or what, whatnot into different markets, I think it's a lot of it has to do with knowing the market and being boots on the ground and like really knowing what you're getting into rather than kind of like parachuting in and, and reading some absolutely and thinking that this is a good yeah. investment. I think if you're yeah. if you're doing that with all those costs and different things that Elliot had mentioned, like the challenges involved, I think if you want to be successful at something, you, you really have to spend time in a market and know and understand it. And that's what I think has allowed us to be successful is, you know, we spent multiple years here. I grew up here, Elliot, 
has been here for, for many years. I moved away for a bit, but always kept a finger on the pulse and, and know it well. So if you're trying to get into any area, I think just being boots on the ground and, and feeling things out rather than reading reports is a, is a good good start for sure. Yeah. I, th- I think if you're referring to like first, you know, people trying to get in the business, I would say start small. Hopefully you understand construction because that, that, that will provide you um, – it's almost – a requirement now. I would yeah, say. by the sounds of what you're you're saying here, it's it, it's almost unwise to go in without <laughs> with green at all in in the area that you're describing. Yeah. So start small. Understand. Re- re- study the zoning. Find high net worth individuals that are interested in what you're doing. Prove to them that you can do what you say you're going to do by starting small. That will attract and then slowly build. And as you build, you'll attract more. But don't be afraid to ask for money. The whole challenge in scaling in this business is you you need cash. You need a lot of cash at one time. You need to have several projects on the go at one time. So, you know, you need to be very creative with putting structures together. But it's the ones that figure it out that actually proceed and grow and scale. The ones that don't understand that or don't find a way or put the resources together to figure it out usually stay and the, they can't scale. So that would be my, a couple of my, my thoughts on getting into the, getting into the space. And then as far as the market here, yeah, it's, 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 it's never been this competitive, but we have a 10 year, we have a 10 year window ahead of us right now where it is, it is, this is the roaring twenties and it's not slowing down anytime soon. Our biggest, our biggest challenge is labor. Yeah, it is finding the resources to get these the capacity to get these projects done everyone's fighting for the same people so that that will that will limit growth which limits housing which so there's a lot of it's a it's a complicated web of things happening but so with that said i i I do kind of have another question and and you've kind of alluded to some of it but future plans for the Bruno group in terms of company growth and expansion. What, what kind of is the direction you guys are willing to share with me right now that you're, you'd, you'd like to go in? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's Great a good question. question. Yeah. Um, you're I, like, I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we, we definitely have a lot of things that we're very excited about. Definitely scaling. We've been scaling. Like Ellie mentioned, we have, we have a pipeline of 600 units of new build that we're building out in addition to all of this kind of adaptive reuse product that we're doing as well. So we're opportunistic investors. We'll always search out opportunities. We're con- going to continue to do what we're doing in, in downtown Dartmouth with the area redevelopment and, and kind of long-term hold strategies that we're employing and delivering cool units into the market. But future direction, I think, yeah, it, it, it could, it, we're definitely going to have quite a bit of local presence here, continue to scale here. We, you know, we may look at other markets or, or do different things that present themselves. If we like the market the same way we did initially in Dartmouth and we've developed a bit of a model for that. So there's, there's opportunities where we may look abroad. We definitely are, are continuing to focus here and build our base, but you know, could be a variety of, of those two things. Yeah. We're long-term hold investors, but maybe we, you know, maybe things change there. Maybe we look at other opportunities to sell off components of what we're doing or future projects. I think what's important is we we, we talk about this often. There's every week there's new opportunity and that new opportunity can take you in different directions. So staying focused, understanding what you do, what you don't do, and not getting ahead of yourself with what's possible 
because you, you you need to be able to execute. You need to be able to build a team around you in a, in a, in a, in a manner that is not too rushed. And so you're not playing catch up all the time and it, it can get messy. So yeah, all of that sounds easier than it, than it is, but you know, yeah. who, who knows where this will take us, but we check in on it often. And, and uh, what we've proven here and what we've accomplished already can be, what will be really interesting is, you know, doing this somewhere else. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. If there's, if there's opportunities that are as nice somewhere else that would, yeah, absolutely. Well, Joe, Elliot, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I feel like we could probably go on about a lot of stuff for for another hour. But before you go, could you each let listeners know where they can connect with you or uh, the best places to connect with you in case they want to reach out? Absolutely. As I mentioned, they're, they're, we have a group of companies, so it might be difficult to, to, to um, focus in on only one there. But for myself, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. And my name again was Elliot McNeil. And it I believe my title on LinkedIn right now might be president of Bruno Builders currently, but is, uh, yes. that's, that's probably <laughs> to inbox me. And, and, you know, we're, we're open collaborative. We, 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 we love the community we work in and, and totally open to helping others. I, I think there's a so much knowledge and secret sauce that we have, but also there, there's so much to share, you know? So getting going is, is really tough unless it's a generational thing or you've been mentored by somebody and that's not easy to come across that. So happy to communicate with any of your listeners and, and, um, and it was great to chat with you as well, Nick. Thank you for, for having us. Yeah. No problem. Joe, do you want to share? For me, it's the same thing. It's LinkedIn is probably the best way to, uh, to get, to get in contact. It's Joe Nickerson. And I think the title on there is VP and partner at Bruno group. So that's, that's the best. Can confirm your LinkedIn titles. (laughs) Yes. I yeah, looked yeah. at them yesterday. <laughs> all right. Well, Shout awesome. Out to Bank of Montreal for supporting us all these years. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you both again for taking the time to join me on this episode of Sink or Swim. Yeah. And until next time, keep swimming. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rensink.com forward slash podcast to access show notes key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in this show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.